Our sermon today comes from Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. Would you please stand out of reverence for the Word of God? For a little bit more context, I'll begin our reading at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen? You may be seated. What is your fundamental identity? From what position, status, or standing do you gather your sense of worth? In our culture today, the question of identity is prevalent and paramount. In our day, the question of identity has become centered around things like gender and sexuality. While these issues have a certain modern twist to them, yet the question of identity is something which people have struggled with throughout all generations. Throughout all human history, people have wrestled with the issue of their identity. The question of identity in itself, it's not a bad one to ask. Who you are, what you do, who you're related to, it does say something about you. And in a sense, it does speak to your identity. I was born an American to Rich and Bonnie. I'm the youngest of seven. I'm married to Sarah. I'm a pastor by calling. These all say something about me and tell you somewhat of my identity. You will notice, though, that even in this short list and many other things could be added, there are things which I had a say in and there's things that I didn't really have a say in. I didn't choose to be born in America to Rich and Bonnie. I didn't choose to be the youngest of seven. But I did choose to marry Sarah. And in accordance to God's calling, I did, in a sense, choose to be a pastor. There were some things about us, our careers, our spouses, our hobbies, which we have a say in. And these contribute to who we are as a person. But these things do not constitute our fundamental identity. The thing about fundamental identities is that they're God-given. All of us here, men, women, boys, and girls, on a base level, are creatures made in the image of God. That is your fundamental identity. That is who you are and what you are at base. It's important to remember this reality. Because once we reject it, this God-given reality, it's then that we rebel 
against the Lord. That's what happened in the beginning, isn't it? Adam and Eve had that first great identity crisis. The serpent caused them to question whether or not they were like God, to question their identity. He told them, if you do this one thing, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. And what should they have said? We're made in his image. We are like God. But instead, they rejected that identity and they tried to lay hold of it to make their own identity in this world instead of accepting the God-given one that they had. And from that, all generations of their children have received that same identity crisis. Our passage of Galatians today speaks to this crisis. When Adam and Eve sinned, they did not completely lose their identity as creatures made in the image of God, but they did deface that image, and they lost their status as son and daughter of God and their right to an inheritance in the garden. This is the situation we are all born into. Fundamentally, we are conceived and born as image bearers of God, but because of sin, that image is defaced. Uh, So we are born as children of wrath, sons of the serpent, even. Yet here, Paul tells us about Jesus Christ, the perfection of God's image, and the eternal Son of God. In his compassion and mercy, and by his infinite grace, Jesus Christ restores God's image in us, and he allows us to share in the status of his sonship. What we will see today is that by faith, we are united to Christ and have status as sons and daughters of God through him. Therefore, as believers, our fundamental identity must be found in our union with Christ, our King. The only status of worth which we have is that we are not our own, but we've been bought and we belong in body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only thing which gives us worth. To come to that conclusion, we'll consider this short passage under two simple headings. One, called as sons, and two, clothed in Christ. Let's look at that first point, called as sons. In verse 7 of chapter 3, Paul had introduced the idea, the concept of being sons of Abraham, saying, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Then he began to explain God's promise to Abraham, which had always included the nations, and that God's promise was always to be received by faith alone. In doing this then, he went on to explain what was the purpose of the law. As we saw in our last sermon, it was put in place because of transgressions to drive transgressors to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he returns to that theme which he introduced of being sons of Abraham. He says in verses 25 through 26, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Notice how Paul again switches from the first person, we, in verse 25, to the second person, you, in verse 26. Here he signals that he is applying to the Galatian believers all that he has argued in this chapter so far. 
In the Greek text, Paul put an emphasis on the word all. It's the first word of the sentence. By placing it first, he emphasized that you, all of you, are sons and daughters of God. This is significant because the false teachers at Galatia were saying the opposite. They were saying that not only are you not sons and daughters of God, you're not sons and daughters of Abraham unless you're circumcised and commit yourselves under the law. There's an irony here, which Paul will bring out in chapter 4, as we'll see in our next sermon. Whereas the false teachers think that placing themselves under the law makes them sons, it actually makes them slaves. For the young child, which had to do everything that that guardian that we talked about, the pedagogos, he had to obey everything he said, and he was liable to punishment by that guardian. Essentially, Paul will say, they lived lives as slaves. And that's what you're trying to put yourself back into. But you are sons of God through faith. Since Christ has come, it is inappropriate to go back to that servile state. This is why Paul states clearly that it is in Christ Jesus that all of you are sons of God. Moreover, one is united to Christ in this way through faith and not law-keeping. Why does Paul use the word sons here and does not add daughters? Did that catch you at all? Or why doesn't he use a more general term like children of God? Well, the first thing to say is that he is not excluding females, women and girls, from this text, from that category. No, he makes it clear in verse 28 that he is including all of the believers at Galatia under this title of sons of God. Well, in the Greco-Roman world of his day, and in many other cultures, the the son, the eldest son, had a a particular status. And the status came with particular benefits, namely that you would be the heir of the father. You would inherit all that was his. Moreover, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, recall, is, is named the son of God. He said to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may Worship me. And also, this title would come to be very significant for the Messiah who would come, who is the Son of God. We even have Adam referred to as the Son of God. All of this Son language, it shows us that this communicates something about a relationship, a close relationship. The Son of God communicated the idea of a privileged status in close relation with him. So for Paul to apply the language of sons of God to the believers at Galatia, he is saying that you have this status of sons of God. You are sharing in this status with the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to fill out the implications of this in verse 29 saying, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Here Paul switches from the language of sons of God to the offspring of Abraham. Recall in verse 16, I mentioned that we were going to go back to this. In verse 16, Paul made it a point to emphasize that God's promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, who he says is Christ. In doing this, Paul highlights that grammatically it was promised to the offspring, a singular offspring. 
Now, we noted when we looked at that, that offspring is a collective noun, and it usually refers to many. Paul knew this, and that's why in this passage that we're looking at, he refers it again to offspring, or improperly, offsprings. But Paul isn't just simply playing with grammar. He's making a profound theological point. He's having a rich theological reading of the Genesis Abrahamic narrative that it always pointed to and rested on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true offspring of Abraham. But notice now in verse 29 that Paul talks about Abraham's offspring. The plural meaning is back. As he calls the Galatians believers Abraham's offspring. Is he contradicting himself by doing this, by seeing the promise as given to offspring and offsprings, singular and plural? No. He's showing us the profound truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is the preeminent offspring of Abraham. And that by faith in him, we join and share in that status. We're being made into one new man. This is a glorious reading which he brings out through this. In other words, he's saying that Paul, the Galatians, and all of us who believe are offspring in the offspring. We are made sons and daughters of God through faith in the Son of God. With these verses, we come to the very heart of Paul's argument in Galatians. The Galatian believers were wavering in their faith, namely in thinking that something more was necessary. They wanted a physical, a tangible sign that they belonged to the people of God. This was the appeal which circumcision and law-keeping had for them. The false teachers were wrongly teaching them that this would secure their place among the people of God, and that sounded good to them to have something they can lay hold of, a, a tradition of laws and ceremonies. It was a temptation for them. Paul's response is that now that Christ has come, though, The seed of promise, seeking to place oneself under the law, does not make you a son, but it makes you a slave. It is by faith and faith only that one becomes a son or daughter of God, for it is by faith that one is then united to Christ. The sign of this new reality is not circumcision, it's baptism. Which brings us to our next and last point. We have just looked at our being called as sons and daughters of God. Now let us consider our being clothed in Christ. So far in this letter, Paul has talked about various aspects of salvation, which comes in Christ. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Chapter 1, verse 4. We are justified by faith. Chapter 2. The curse is removed from us because Christ became a curse For us, so far, the chapter 3. One aspect which Paul has not directly applied to the Galatians themselves is the concept of union with Christ. He did talk about union with Christ in chapter 2 when he says that through the law I died to the law. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He did talk about it, but he didn't directly apply that yet to the Galatians though it was indirectly. 
But he begins here in verse 27 saying, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's several things to note about this verse. First, this is not talking about an exclusive group among the Galatians who have uniquely received this baptism. No, the as many of you refers back to the all of you in the prior verses. Second, notice that there is a directional or or locative sphere to your baptism. Paul says, you were baptized into Christ. Now, is Paul talking about physical baptism or spiritual baptism? Yes. For Paul, you can't disconnect these. When the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and works faith in us, we receive that promised spiritual baptism, even as we are united to Christ. The water baptism which believers receive is a sacramental sign and seal of that great spiritual reality. And that same sacramental sign and seal is given to our children, and we look to God's covenant faithfulness to do that same spiritual work in their heart, when, where, and however the Holy Spirit decides to do that. Third, note well that there is a permanent change which takes place. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is strikingly vivid language and imagery that Paul is using here. He describes the person of Christ as a garment, as clothing us. It's something that we put on. In our baptism, Paul is saying, we dress ourselves with Christ. We are clothed with the very perfections of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the Galatians that they need to understand the radical implications of the coming of Christ, the coming of the faith, and the giving of His Spirit. So he states in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here Paul leaves no stone of social classification unturned. Ethnic distinctions, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Class distinctions, there is neither slave nor free. Gender distinctions, there is neither male nor female. How can that be? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in explaining what Paul is saying here, it's important to explain what he's not saying as well. He is not literally saying that there are no longer ethnic distinctions, that there's no longer class distinction, that there's no longer gender distinctions. Paul knows that there are, and he, in fact, has a lot to say in his letters to all these different categories, and he speaks to each person in the particular station which they are in in their life. What Paul is saying is that in, ter- in terms of salvation, in terms of our standing before God, there is no distinction. Whether you are Jew or Greek, a master or a slave, a male or a female, if you are united to Christ by faith, then you are clothed in the very perfections of his person and work. When it comes to this, there is no room for distinctions of the old creation, corrupted as it was by sin, for Christ is bringing about a new creation. And Paul will explain that even more in chapter 6. 
This is a verse, though, which people are given to take with great pendulum swings. There are some who see Paul's statements here and want to take them as an absolute statement of social and ecclesiastical egalitarianism. That there's no distinction between people anymore. As such, many try to use this verse, for example, to argue that women should be, can be, officers in the church. There's neither male or female anymore. Yet, on the other side of the pendulum... There are those who can so spiritualize this statement so that it seems that there really are no social or ecclesiastical differences which come about through the person and work of Christ. I would argue that both of these approaches fail to do justice to what Paul says in this context. To that first side of the pendulum, we need to say clearly that Paul very much is talking about salvation and an equal standing which we all have both outside and inside of Christ. In terms of a right standing before God and a status of worth, the only thing that matters is whether or not you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. But as I said, this doesn't mean that Paul doesn't recognize and acknowledge social and ecclesiastical distinctions. As such, for example, he's very clear in his letters that women are not called to the ordained ministry, but that's for qualified men. But to the other side of the pendulum, those who over-spiritualize this text, we need to offer a caution. Paul is concerned here with matters of salvation, but he's speaking about these in a very particular social and cultural and ecclesiastical situation. There was racial and ethnic enmity in Paul's day. Moreover, slaves and women were treated as subhuman and were viewed as property. Therefore, the gospel message that the only status of worth in the divine economy is found in being united to Christ, clothed in his worth and in his gloriousness, this is a radical reality. In God's eyes, no master can be clothed in a better robe than the Lord Jesus Christ, which the slave has put on by faith. This was and is a radical message, and it did and still should affect how we treat people in both social and ecclesiastical spaces. As those who are united to Christ, we need to see those outside of the church as fellow image bearers of God and worthy of dignity and of our love. Moreover, they deserve that we tell them of a Savior who can restore that image in them to what it was meant to be and that they can be clothed in the very worth of his person and his work. Inside the church, there is no place for favoritism or enmity. We need to view others in the church, not according to the world's standards, but as God views them. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, clothed with our Savior. Indeed, we need to view them as ourselves, as Paul says, for you are all one, in Christ Jesus. The Scottish reformer David Dixon paraphrased Paul well, saying, For all of you, whosoever are endowed with true faith, do constitute, and as it were, make up one person in Christ. Let that reality sink in. Think about it. We are united 
to the offspring of Abraham. We're united to the eternal Son of God. And we're being made up as one new man, one new person, even as it were. That should affect how we view each person in this place. We should see them as God sees them, clothed in Christ. This is the message which Paul has for the Galatians and for us. The rite of circumcision which the Galatians were being pressured to undergo was the sacramental sign and seal of God's covenant with Abraham. It signified graphically the cutting off of sinful flesh with its sinful desires, and it sealed God's promise that the flesh would not fulfill this covenant, but that he would fulfill this covenant through the coming of the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. With the coming of Christ, the significance of circumcision has been fulfilled, even as he has poured out his spirit and is circumcising the hearts of his people. The covenant sign appropriate now for the people of God is not that which looked to the Christ to come, but which looks to the Christ who has come and which signifies our being engrafted into him. Paul is telling the Galatians that in Christ, you have everything. You are Abraham's offspring because you are united to and clothed in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ the righteous. To be circumcised and place oneself under the law would be to reject that Jesus is that offspring and to try again to fulfill the covenant through fleshly efforts, which can only, as Paul has argued, result in coming under a curse. This message ought to be of great encouragement to all of us, weary but baptized sinners, though we be. You have been baptized. Through faith, you have put on Christ as a garment. I love the way Calvin explains Paul's meaning here. Calvin writes, He means that they are so closely united to him that in the presence of God, they bear the name and character of Christ and are viewed in him rather than in themselves. Christian, is this how you view yourself? In your struggle with sin, in the hardships of life and the discouragements that you face, remind yourself of your baptism. You have put on Christ. You were so closely united to him that in the presence of God, you bear Christ's name and his character. He views you not in yourself with all your failures and sins, but he views you in his precious Son. Isn't that a glorious thing? I will end us here with where we began by asking you, what is your fundamental identity? From what do you gather your worth? Is it in your job? They can be lost. In your body, it will deteriorate. In your mind, it's going to lose its capacities. In your relationships, they can be broken. All these things and the many more which could be added are not bad in themselves, and don't hear me saying that. But they don't make up who you are on a fundamental basis. They can all, and this is what they have in common, they can all be taken away from you in a moment. Let me leave you with this. Pursue your careers. 
Take care of your bodies, cultivate your minds, and build up your relationships. But do all of this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Above all, trust in Christ and find your identity in Him. He is of infinite worth. And in His grace, He shares that status of worth with us poor and needy sinners. Remember your baptism. Trust in Christ and be clothed in the finest garments of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we marvel at why are we a guest um, in your house, not even guests. We are sons and daughters. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring, and we thank you that by faith in him, we are sons and daughters of God with a right to the inheritance, which is properly your son's. Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts, encourage weary sinners this day through your gospel and through your sacrament. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We've been talking about baptism today. Your baptism means something. It means that this meal is for you. It means that you are identified with Christ. It means that you are a son and daughter of God. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us, the offspring, so that we might be offspring in that offspring. As you want to build upon your baptism, as we talk about in our tradition, that you make good use of it, There's perhaps no better time for that than when you're sitting at this meal. Reflect on what it means that you are allowed as a son and daughter to sit at God's table and to partake of the heavenly food. You're clothed in Christ and you eat of him and are being built up by faith. But that means something else. If you're not baptized, if you're not trusting in Christ, if you do not belong to his church, There is a distinction, and this table is not for you. So as the elements go by, I would ask that you would let them just pass so it does not become a curse for you. But never, my friend, let Christ pass. Receive him by faith, and you will be a son and daughter of God. It's a glorious, glorious truth. But for those of us who, yes, we may be struggling, we are weak sinners, on our way, on our pilgrimage to heaven, receive Christ by faith again and receive this meal for your spiritual nourishment. Let's pray to the Lord that he would bless these elements uh, to our good. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, yet you are him who 
emptied yourself and took on the form of a servant. But now you are highly exalted and you feed your people from heaven. You give us to dine at your table. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would nourish our faith this day. Help us to improve upon our baptism by trusting more and more in you. It's in your precious name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.